Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucking Daleks? What the fucksters? What the fucking avians? What the fucking Canadians? Damn. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. I'm glad you're here. Well, I had an okay day. We're writing uh, Marin, the second season. It's coming along good. All 13 scripts are in pretty good shape. We got one that's uh, that's uh, still on the uh, on the uh, on the forklift. No, on the lift, and we're up under it, poking around in the story, making it better. Very exciting. It's very exciting. This part. You know, weeks and weeks of writing a story and breaking story and writing scripts and tabling scripts and taking network notes and studio notes and reworking scripts. Eventually, uh, you just want to get the fuck out of that room and stop eating snacks. So that's going to happen. We start shooting next week and uh, we're going to shoot for a couple months and we're going to get in it. And I'm excited. I'm going to I'm going to focus on uh, me playing me. I'm going to try and up the ante with the acting this season. Thought I did okay. Think I can do better. Scripts are funnier. We know what we're doing. Uh, once again, Bobcat Goldthwait's going to be directing a few episodes. Luke Matheny again returning. Rob Cohen returning to the helm. So they're going to do uh, they're going to do uh, four, four, and four, I think, or something like that. And I'm going to direct one. I'm going to direct an episode of Marin. That's uh, that's sort of uh, pretty close to my heart in a way, dealing with uh, with comedy and comedians. But uh, so that's all exciting. Now, as long as I don't, you know, fall apart before, everything's going to be all right. Speaking of comedians, today's guest, Barry Crimmins, I've known since I was a college student. I wouldn't say that I knew him back then, but he held a special place uh, starting out in stand-up. Now, when you listen to this episode, I was up in, uh, where was I? I was in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, doing gigs, and I knew that Barry was up there. Now, Barry was, uh, and still is, a very important political comedian there's not many political comedians real political comedians i mean real sort of political satirists who who seek to uh to cut through the hypocrisy of the political dialogue and and champion you know what is good and right about people and how uh, people are, are misrepresented or 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 not represented or or used uh by our political system it's a rare person that commits their life to that and barry crimmins has uh, Barry Crimmins uh, in the 80s was a, a very important comedic force uh, against the Reagan administration. Has never stopped. He was involved with uh, with Air America when I was there, uh, writing things, pieces, jokes, bits. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal. Uh, he's very clever and and he's an eloquent writer and, and a great stand up and, and a great uh, you know political satirist. Now, when I was a kid. When I lived in Boston and I was just starting out doing comedy, I really had no idea. I, I don't. I didn't have any idea about politics. I was a straight-up reactionary. That was my racket. Uh, relatively uh, un, not non-nuanced, uh, uneducated uh, when it comes to politics in any sort of uh, deep way. But I, I knew who I hated, and I and I knew I didn't like authority, and I and I knew that I was a a lefty. I knew I come from the. Uh, the, the the sort of hippie tradition of revolution uh, that was what impacted me as a kid but but really I was not 
I would never call myself a political comic. And even when I did Air America, even when I, I you know, learned how to do radio, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. I was, uh, I was offered this opportunity, and I was like, yeah, man, I, you know, I'd like to get rid of Bush. I want to be part of that. Who, who do, what do we got to do, man? Where do I got to sit down? Where do I get to yell stuff? And it was interesting because I got to uh, New York at that time, having never done radio, and really not knowing that much about politics. And this is between you and I. Maybe you know. Maybe maybe I've told you this before, but I literally showed up uh, at the offices of Air America. I had packed in my bag for the plane, uh, like that one of those books, like the American Government for Dummies, because I just needed to get up to speed. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, a bill is a bill. Was that Schoolhouse Rock? I mean, you know, that was you know the, the depth of my wisdom about the legislation, how legislation works, how the U.S. government works, the branches of governments, how many senators, how many congressmen, what do they do? You know, how do they decide on things? You know, what do people have to do with it? Uh, who's in charge of what? Man, that that year and a half at Air America, I I didn't pay attention in civics. I don't even think I took civics. I think I took a American history, but I had no fucking idea. I swept through high school. Come on, man. Man, I was too busy rotating which classes I would ditch as opposed to learn anything. You know, I'm a bright guy. I'm a quick learner, but I didn't know shit. So I had to like, I had to learn and cram. I've never been a wonky guy. I've never been that concerned about politics. I just want to say, you know, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Occasionally I'd come up with some uh, fairly clever stuff because I was intuitive. But boy, what an education that was. And then once I made the decision to start doing the podcast and, and stay entirely away from politics uh, to the disappointment of uh, maybe a thousand or so people who who enjoyed what I did on Air America, it was primarily because I didn't think I could service it. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, you know, necessarily, I don't think it's a mystery, you know, where I think politically, but I realized that, you know, I was an angry guy and my struggles were, were more existential. And, you know, when politics affects me uh, directly and, and gets me angry and I need to raise awareness, I generally do. Uh, the patent troll situation is good, but it wasn't my life. And I'm, I'm not, and I'm happy it's not my life. It's a difficult life to fight that fight. And you really have to be passionate about it and, and stay on top of it. You have to stay on top of that narrative. Now, the thing about Barry and the thing we'll learn here with this interview, uh, outside of his impact on the Boston comedy scene that I became part of, and I had no idea some of the stuff he told me. And I also had no idea that, um, you know, part of his story was, uh, you know, very traumatic, and I want to give you a heads up for that. You know, this was, uh, you know, his story as a comedian, his story about, you know, his uh, place in comedy is sort of founded in, in, a, in a very, you know, traumatic and, and upsetting event in his childhood, which he talks about. And I, I think what you really get to see here in a way that I'd never seen it before, and, and I talked to him about this explicitly, is how we are shaped by our, our childhood trauma. You know, and specifically, you know, where do your politics come from if you're passionate about them? You know, what, what, where, where do you come from as an individual and what effects did your childhood have on that? And this is addressed fairly early on. And I just want to give you a heads up for that because it's heavy stuff. And, uh, and Barry is a sweet guy and he's a sharp guy and he's a great comedian. And uh, it was it was a powerful conversation. But man, you know, I can't, I tell you, I was so intimidated by him when I was younger. 
just because the dialogue was so it was out of my wheelhouse. I mean, you can talk about politics like a moron, which a lot of people do. Uh, most people, you know, their opinions of politics are, are based on emotion. Uh, they're not necessarily based on 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 intelligence or, or actual knowledge. So, you know, I'm a reactionary thinker. And when a reactionary thinker meets not only a progressive reactionary, but educated and nuanced thinker about politics, it's hard for a reactionary not to say, well, fuck that guy, too. Who the hell does he think he is? But uh, I learned a lot from Barry. And, uh, you know, and I'm thrilled he's on the show and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're enjoying your life. Uh, I'm trying to enjoy mine. Things are settling down a bit. I'm starting to do some some material now that I'm uh, through the, uh, you know, the the eye of the storm. Again, I'm being I'm taking the high road. Uh, it's a nuanced high road. I think nuanced, of course, is the theme of today's show. Uh, nuanced the word. This show is brought to you by nuanced. This is my conversation with the, uh, you know, with the brilliant Barry Crimmins took place in a hotel in Buffalo, New York. The first time that I met you was um, at Stitches. You hosted a show at Stitches. Yeah. You had a political show there. I believe, I want to think it was a Wednesday night. <clears throat> I did Thursdays and every other Saturday at Stitches. All right, so I was completely wrong. Well, you were off by a day. I remember, I remember. You're, you're uh, too hard on yourself. Yeah. I, I, am I? You're telling me that? Yeah, I, you? I guess that's, but that's sort of the point. Huh? <laughs> it's not a conscious point. Yeah. It's something that evolves naturally and then you try to get uh-huh. rid of and you well, can't. You know, getting to do this podcast, you know, I just, I mean, I now they said it on Twitter and Facebook and I start getting these messages from all these people. Oh, tell Mark, you know, he'll remember me because that time he was trying to order a sandwich and <laughs> And I, I mentioned his shoes to him, and he looked at me kind of funny, but yeah. then he snickered a little, but he won't forget that. Uh-huh. You know, and there's like, and I'm thinking like, this is hilarious. Like, these people think Marin's a disapproachable guy. <laughs> like, like yeah. the last, yeah. I'm I too approachable. Yeah, you're really approachable. But like, I'm not saying I to remember that. I mean, now I'm trying to think about the sandwich thing. Was that a real thing? Uh, that, that actually from, was. From what sandwich he, and shoes, I think. From St. what Louis. era? I don't. I didn't. I didn't get any. Because of that. I, when when I first met you, I think I was in college. I was in. in I had not started doing comedy probably, right. and I'd gone to Stitches with David Cross. Oh yeah. Uh, I think I must have been maybe a sophomore or a junior at college, and and he wanted to do comedy, and he might have done a little comedy where he came from, and we went to see you. Right. And uh, I I tell a story about you all the time. Actually, I just uh, because you know you were in, in innately. Uh, political comic always, right. but you still had to deal with Boston audiences. Right. And my memory of you is just, uh, you know, you'd start your show no matter what night it was, and within 10 minutes you'd get exasperated, and you'd take <laughs> a, a deep breath and go, all right, there are three branches of government. <laughs> that was one of the two, yeah. Right. <laughs> right? Right, right. That right. was a bit? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I used to work with maps. Yeah, you know, fake maps or real. Well, I, back then, remember the old maps where the United States was always in the middle. I say, hey, that's good. The United States, we're in the middle. I like that. So <laughs> you notice the Soviet Union is here, yeah, and here, not quite <laughs> as cool anymore. <laughs> it's like the old us versus usser joke. <laughs> but uh, w- but I have no idea where you came from. I know that at that time, there was sort of a heyday in Boston comedy. I think during the the Reagan years. I mean, you were at the top of your game. I remember you had an album come out with Will Durst and Jimmy Tingle was right, a strange right, bedfellow. Right, right. That I think that in terms of modern political comedy, the 80s were it. 
in terms of when mm -hmm. it defined itself, correct? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we turned a corner, yes. Mm -hmm. I think actually we sort of were able to carry on from where like Lenny Bruce got things, mm -hmm. and what, you know, like Lenny did all the stuff, but it had to be about him because he was always in trouble and being, t now, you know what, you're not going to get in trouble for being that guy. Right. And so now you can actually get down to, to brass tacks. Yeah, to talking about it with some safety yeah. and intelligence yeah. without yeah. half of it being the menace of like, is he going to get arrested tonight? <laughs> yeah, right, 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But where did you start? Although, you although I did do, one time in Johnson City, yeah. Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, I finish a show. And a cop comes in and he says, uh, yeah, we've had a call. We understand some remarks were made here remarks. tonight. <laughs> some remarks were made. <laughs> yeah. And I had to do a show the next night, and, and, and the people from John said, don't get away. Because I was going to go, yeah, there was remarks made. Yeah, let's see. There's a microphone <laughs> off in there that's used for yeah. But they go, get out. They got me in the car, and they got me out of there. Oh, really? Because they thought what, you'd uh -oh. be taken back oh, they in thought, time? They thought, yeah, they, they thought <laughs> I was probably spend the night in the you know, Johnson City uh, jail. So... So I flew out safely the next day. But well, where did you like? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Skinny Atlas, New York. Up around here? Uh, east of here, you know, the it was the easternmost Finger Lake. Mm -hmm. Skinny Atlas is an Indian word that means beautiful lake, surrounded mm -hmm. by fascists. <laughs> so, so they're a little prouder now, or no? Yeah, yeah, they're good. That's well, what was good. it like? Now, now the town's like. Well, it was really quaint and really, you know, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now it's all dressed up to look like itself. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's like an artist's rendition of what my hometown is supposed to look like, and as my friend Jimmy Huxford, hilarious guy, says, yeah. uh, you you know, like it's just like I mean, you you can buy if you need a Christmas ornament in June, you're in the right place. And he said, so Huxford says, you get anything your horse needs except food. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, so. But that's a lot. I mean, sometimes I was saying that to uh, the guy I was with today. We went up to Niagara Falls. Is that? There's something as sad as it is up there and as broken as that town yeah, seems to yeah. be. And I know nothing about it. Yeah. I know it's obviously economically stifled, to right. say the least. But, but I'm sort of, uh, I, I like that it's still the same town it was. That right. there hasn't been this, this uh, effort to either you know, destroy it completely yeah, right. or, or you know, doll it up. Right, right, uh, right. That it seems to have the integrity. It shows what it used to look like and it shows its decay. And it right. shows a, a sort of sadness that, you know, is a lot of parts of America. And they've kept the water feature. <laughs> yeah, the it's very popular. Yeah. They're one yeah. thing. That, but I thought it was beautiful. Well, we used to, when we used to come up here, we'd come up to, like, Buffalo. Yeah. You know, we'd come to Buffalo for yeah. a concert and do acid or something. Then yeah. we had all, the rest of the night to kill. Yeah. We'd go up to Niagara Falls. Back in those days, there's a, there was this little island you could get out to. I think it's still there. No? Yeah, but, yeah, but you're not allowed there anymore because they started breaking off or something. But they... but. Back in those days, they had a sign like the forest ranger made with a wood burning kit yeah. and just hung it on a chain, which lowered it just enough so it was easy to step over. And we would go out and literally, there's there this bigger island, but we would get on these littler yeah. islands and just yell, fuck! Ah! You yeah. know, so we were like surfing on the Niagara. Really? Yeah, go yeah, we, yeah that was great. That Make campfires and stuff? Well, we wouldn't, no, no, no we wouldn't, no, because you wanted to, well, yeah, no, yeah. we didn't want to draw any attention, and right. play, you know, play, but we were just, we would just, you know, you could do anything, because the, the roar of the water was so loud, it would cover up anything, so I, we, found, you know. I, I found it amazing, I don't yeah. think I'd ever been there, I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I feel like I've, I might have drove through it, but I don't, I'm not even sure I ever have, yeah. it is astounding, man. Yeah, it's a real force of nature, and it's less than it used to be, they slowed it down. With the dam. Yeah, well, whatever. The Army Corps engineers did something to Sure, like they always do, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, those guys. Dangerous leftists. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get in trouble. Yeah. 
But uh, all right, so you, you well now we need <coughs> to do some acid and go to concerts in Buffalo. Who'd you see? Oh, you know the Who, uh, yeah. Rolling Thunder review with Did Dylan. you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like how old were you? So you're a little older. Than I was. I, at that point, I was probably about nineteen. Well, no, that was seventy six. Was yeah. Rolling Thunder, so that would have been twenty three. Uh, and you were still up here at twenty three. Well, I was in and out. You know, from going back and forth. Uh, yeah, to where? I was in and out. Well, they, Different places. I had a buddy uh, we who who uh, got into a little trouble in, in in Rhode Island, and so the, his parents shipped him up to the ski house in New Hampshire. And we kind of like it didn't snow all winter, so we just ran a resort for our friends, and you know took advantage of the low low liquor prices in in <laughs> New Hampshire. He got he got himself into some trouble. Yeah, well, a little, bit, a little bit, yeah. But they, he, like, he, they had to do something for the kid. <laughs> well, they the, just wanted to get him out, yeah. of, you know, for a while. But he was my. Uh, He's my good friend. He, he actually died a few years ago. Great guy. He went out and became a union uh, carpenter in San Francisco for years. Uh, Credico was the other guy on that record, right? Credico. I just worked with him last week. I, Come on. I, I did, because he's running for mayor. Of New York? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's he doing? Well, you know, I really think it's turned his way now with all this NSA shit that's come up, because it's sort of like, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's doing sort of like guerrilla things you know political theater with yeah. this thing but suddenly you know it's become clear to at least a reasonable number of people that they've tipped their hands and they really look upon both the the the, 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 the you know i mean i say the american political you know uh spectrum you, yeah. go, you know it's like two parties that are five inches apart who yell at each other across a thousand foot chasm and we're supposed to worry about them all the time but right. We don't have a third party because corporations don't want to write a third check. You know? right. So, you know, I'm so sick of that stuff and worshiping those people. And, you know, Howard Zinn said, go out, do the least amount of damage you can do on Election Day and then hold their feet to the fire the rest of the time. And that's a. But so many people think they're really politically active by just worshiping one party or the other. And it's two things. And it's so American. It's like a pennant race or something. Mm -hmm. You know, Red Sox suck, Yankees suck, right. Republicans suck, Democrats. And we're just, you know, we just keep ourselves busy beating ourselves on the head with the boards they provide for mm -hmm. us. But now with this NSA. More money, you get nicer boards. That's right. Mm -hmm. But with this NSA thing, they've really kind of tipped their hand. And they've, they've kind of made it in, indicated that they consider all of us the enemy, you know? And they don't give a shit. Yeah, no, they don't give a shit. It's I, like, I, yeah, we're doing that. I thought everyone knew that. <laughs> yeah, right, what right. And I'm nostalgic. I remember the good old days when you felt a little special if the government was watching. Oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> we're the, the old timey yeah, spies. Right, yeah, right, Why, right. We're, what happened to the list? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, list. I know, I know. And I, you, know, you work hard to get on that yeah, list. You do. Now, you know. You know. think you were on the list at some point? Oh, I, you know, who knows? That's so grandiose. But, you know, I, I think that probably because some of the people I kept company with and a few of the things I did, you know. Like, when was that? What, what stuff are you talking about? Well, a few arrests at some nuclear waste production mm -hmm. facilities, and which is what they, nuclear power plant. But, I mean, you should, truth in labeling, call it what it really does. Um, Create and, radioactive yeah, carbon. Yeah, more, more effectively than sure. anything. You know? And by the yeah. way, when you want to build one, show me your water feature that's going to work for the next 300,000 years, <laughs> and I'll give you the okay. Hell of a half-life. Yeah, but uh, uh, that and the stuff in Nicaragua with Credico. And yeah, I want, to get, I want to get to that because I, I, I don't know if I understood <coughs> everything was going on. So, okay, so we're back here, 1972, 70, whatever it was. Yeah, right. Or 76, you were yeah. 23. Yeah, and I'd already been out west and done a little bit of stand-up. When did you start doing stand-up? 
Well, actually, when I was up in New Hampshire, we were so poor, I had to go out and win a talent show one night. So I played the kazoo and t- made jokes about shoplifting. And <laughs> Those were your choices? Because yeah. you yeah. went shoplifting? Yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't, everybody else was poor and was shoplifting, but I was like Mr. Morality. I'm not going to shoplift, you know, but, yeah. I met, but I knew everybody's methods. And, I, and I, I think I got a lot of laughs saying, if I wanted to shoplift, I'd be great at it. Yeah. But, you know, I, you know, you guys are morons. I can't believe you're <laughs> nailed. But, uh... Yeah, and playing like the theme song from Leave It to Beaver on a kazoo, and you know that killed. Yeah, and uh, how long I, did that stay with you? The uh, the kazoo part of the act that went right over. Right. That, that was almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing some of that just to open. I guess it wouldn't be open mics; it was talent shows. Well, that was just there. We saw the sign. You know, mm-hmm. we went in that day for some reason. We'd been at a joke and novelty shop, and we had it right. You know, and you know you're out there. You got to do something. And did you like stand up? I mean, was it something you wanted to do, or did you? Just oh well, do it you know what? Flute? I didn't think I was eligible because I was such a farm. Because I'm from you know Jesus Christ in upstate New York, and right? like, and and uh, I didn't think you could be a country boy and do that stuff because everybody was so ethnic and stuff. Well, I went to the University of Miami as a freshman, did the one year smuggling program, mm-hmm. and. Um, <laughs> And I literally would laugh when the Jewish kids, some of the Jewish kids talked in the same patter as like Jackie Mason or something, yeah, yeah. And they, but they're being serious and I'm laughing at them like a moron. <laughs> and then I find out I'm being an idiot, so I yeah. try to clear it up and somebody, oh, a Jewish holiday's coming up, what's coming up? Yom Kippur. I literally wish people happy Yom Kippur. That's, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's like... Not, that's not that, the happy no, one. No, yeah, like have a <laughs> tremendous day of atonement, yeah. you know? Hope you get back in yeah. the book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so... so uh, so, you know, I, I but, but eventually I caught on that I could, you know, like I caught on that you could do it. You know, you, you actually, you could do it, but you had to figure out where to do it. So, you know, I started trying to hustle up stuff and I ended up opening up for like local rock bands in upstate New York. And I mean, you got like three seconds to get there. Oh, in the year introduction would be like, oh, they, the band would finish. We'll be back in a few. And then they, all of a sudden some come out. Oh yeah, there's some guy is comedy something i don't know and that's your intro and you you know and, and then and then i finally got this one place where the guy goes i want to do comedy and he goes i got a sound system and i go in for the, the sound system is literally you know the you know the thing they had in the old offices like madge come in here yeah he had intercom. like yeah yeah the intercom he had yeah. that set up on the stage and then in like madge's speaker in the middle of the room <laughs> and he's going like no that'll be great he's got to hold the button down. yeah yeah right you know <laughs> <laughs> but when, when did you see it at that time like who were your guys with, you were looking at that where you were sort of modeling you know what you wanted to do well at? you know i mean it, it always sounds haughty but Twain was always a big influence. Mark Twain. Yeah, and his, his way of just sort of and presenting you, And you'd read things. him in high school, or, or you'd read him in college? And I started reading him. I mean, they tried to make me read him too early. You know, making a kid read Huckleberry Finn with all that dialect and stuff, it's just like, you, you can drive people. Yeah, well, you can scare them away forever, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that, but I mean, it, I didn't realize it at the time, but he was doing, you know, like audio history. I mean, he was he recorded how they actually talked the matter of fact racism and how cruel they were to children and mm-hmm. whatever and and the dialects and they were you know and there was like a hundred different dialects See, like, i don't think i understand twain enough like i don't think like you know my experience of reading him like i know he's just this great humorist but yeah. i don't think i've put my time in in really you know understanding twain he, he takes he takes a little getting hold of he, he did for me but he, 
He's he really is a big influence on me. But I mean, I loved Carlin. I loved Pryor. Even, even when they were straight Twain, comics. What do you think? I mean, what what was what was it? That, what are the tools of Twain? You know, that you kind of gleaned. Well, it just is incredible use of the language mm-hmm. and you know um like understated but extremely sarcastic and powerful like yeah. he could he could turn something on its head pretty yeah. quickly and then you know for years i read all the stuff everybody read advice to youth you know mm-hmm. always obey your parents when they're in the room you know yeah, yeah, real yeah. funny stuff like yeah. that and that's what got me oh, but then i started like yeah right yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. but then I started reading the later stuff that was really censored. And how they censored Twain was they said he got old and bitter. His wife died. A couple of his kids died. His son died when he was like months old. He'd been through all sorts of stuff. The rest of his family died. He had all these dear friends that had died and whatever. But he was still out there writing essays, challenging society. And, and he, he's getting late, so he, you know, he, he just figured he was going to call spade a spade. And, and some of his most beautiful stuff was written in the last 20, 25 years of his life. But it's all censored. Then you turn on, like, Star Trek, and they, they've got Mark Twain there, and they're, t- they're telling him, well, you're too bitter. You've really got... And he wasn't... I mean, he was still in there pitching, which was an act of optimism, which reminds me of, you know, my what, getting to Boston and then ending up with Howard Zinn as, like, a mentor. Howard always called himself an optimist, you know, and people said, well, how can you be an optimist? And he said, because he studied history, and he would, want, he would find these little moments in history where someone took a principled stand, and all of a sudden it catches on, and, this, and this, these giant institutions that you think could never be assailed are crumbled, they're dust in, in, in almost no time at all. Maybe that's what this kid Snowden just did. Maybe, maybe that's a Zen moment. That's what I, I, I like to think of myself as a Zen optimist. Like you get the prairie fire going there. You wake people enough up to the point where you understand like these people that we worship and argue with each other about, you know, would like, you know, turn into Mr. Burns or at least the hounds if you got sure. anywhere near their front door. Well, I mean, it could be that moment. It depends on how, you know, placated and, uh, apathetic the masses are in terms of, I mean the, the only thing that makes it not as in moment is if the, the if people go like I got nothing to hide they, yeah no I understand I understand they, 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 it's hard to make people understand that the infrastructure put in place in the wrong hands and arguably they may be in the wrong hands now but they're yeah. in better hands than they could be maybe mm, maybe yeah that once the infrastructure is in place we're, we're fucked that you well, know it, 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 it could be used by uh, the worst kind of people well I mean all sorts of pri- quote unquote private contractors have uh, have access to this stuff. I think the term revenue stream probably comes to their head mm-hmm. with what they can do with some of this stuff. I, I fear that. Call me crazy. Okay, so speaking truth to power in the Twain model, which is which is like you're entertaining them, yeah. and 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 then they go, ooh, like that hurt a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's attractive and that's a powerful yeah. political stance. Is yeah. that? You know, you don't necessarily have to pick a side. You just have to be not even cynical, but uh, you just have to have the courage to turn it in on itself and, and hold up a, a dark mirror. That, that's, you know, right. And it's it's why I'm not big on conspiracies because yeah, really what, hole, what's, what's going on right in front of our faces that we're ignoring? Mm-hmm. If I have to create some, I mean, I, I, and, and the conspiracy stuff to me is just like you might as well give up. If the fix is in that far, you might as well 
just give up. What my friend Jim, who who has worked for several presidents, once said to me when I yeah. went on a conspiracy yeah. tirade, he yeah. said, "Mark, people here just aren't that organized." Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, give me giving them way too much credit. Yeah, but the, if we could just get people to pay attention to what's being done to them right in front of their faces. Like this latest insult with the, you know, we're going to violate everybody's civil liberties for our security. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you can just sort of boil it down and put it that, you, you just boil it down into simple stuff, say it matter of factly, you know, it's just right there for you. It's well, a, well, going back to, you know, what inspired you to, to, to do comedy, I mean, at some point, when did you, I mean, I understand that you like Mark Twain and you're yeah. in your 20s, right? But I mean, when did you choose? To fight that fight, to fight the fight where I'm like, you know, not only not only am I going to do comedy, or and or be a satirist, yeah. if you want to call yourself. Well, that, that that came along. I just the satirist thing. You know what? You know what I think it came from. I never was a coke guy, so I had my days free, and I would, you know, read and do stuff. Figure I, I have a job. I report back to the audience, so I could, you know, people right. are stuck in traffic. You're a reporter. Morning. Yeah, to some extent. You right. Know, uh, um, expository humor to some extent, but. Uh, I, there was no real plan in my head because I was just bluffing from the start. Like the ding ho was like the biggest bluff ever. I just came and go like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. And so just when, did, when did that happen though? It's because what's, what's that was seventy nine. That moves right. up to seventy nine. Historically together, so you're, you're you're bouncing around up here, and you grew up in a religious house or what? You no, no like well, you're... I grew Catholic, yeah. Catholic, and uh-huh. I, I've demanded excommunication. <laughs> I have, I have, because I mean, <laughs> in case there's a god. Please. I do not want to be associated with certain <laughs> groups when judgment comes. You, you were know? brought up with a concept of hell and heaven and guilt and this and that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Having to go to a priest and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, and then I had to serve mass every day with one of the worst pedophile priests ever. But he he tried and he started to give me the shoulder rub and I would hit him with an elbow, and he backed up. Now I didn't know what I was getting away with then, but I mean, it turns out now that they you know they profile a kid and whatever. But this guy turned out to be. One of the most, his name was Thomas Neri, and he would orally rape a boy and say, you have to swallow all of this because I'm, I'm God's messenger on earth, and this is like the Eucharist. He would anally rape a boy and pray very loud in, in Latin so that the mother who he has downstairs saying rosaries, you say, well, it's very tough. It's this, this, I, if we were, we're going to find out if he has a vocation for the priesthood, he's up there raping the kid, and then on the way out the door, he takes five or ten bucks from the mother for, for uh, instructions. He made the children who he was raping say uh, confession to him afterwards. He was, and he looked like Christopher Lee. Wow. <laughs> so he was like Dracula, and nobody else... Serve mass. I got stuck serving mass and every day. You knew day. that guy uh, every day. I wrote about it. It's called. Uh, it's on my website, Mea Maxima Culpa. I tell the story, but I mean, you know, my I I now know several of his uh, true victims. I mean, I mean, this guy though on the altar every morning would tell, "I'm going to hell. I'm this. I'm that." He tried. He was trying to drive me out because you know the pond wasn't stocked when I was there. So I, you wonder why I have a problem with authority. I'm on an altar every morning, and this priest is telling you know the con- the assembled congregation that I'm going to hell, that I'm no good. You know, I pour water. You know, the water. And like, Are you trying to drown me? You know, like I mean, just like he did that in front of people every day. Wow. And then a couple times he tried to get me in his car. I'll take you for an ice cream. No thanks, Father. I have to go to North Korea. He felt something weird. 
Oh, I he, I didn't want to be anywhere near but that you didn't, guy. You, but you didn't know at the time what was happening. Well, you know, back then, with our limited vocabulary, and yeah. it sounds homophobic now, but he was he was referred to by the kids in town as Father Query, uh-huh. which meant he wanted to go after little boys. Well, word was out, though. Someone must have said yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amongst and, the kids. Yeah, well, and I mean, and now, and I mean, I know of suicides that resulted from that man. I know of people who are, you know, struggle their whole life with what he did to them. And then the... And the the church has just been you know awful about it. So anyway, yeah, I've demanded uh, excommunication. They have this rule, this secret rule in the church that if a priest or someone, a leader of the church, is in a situation where the damage can be done to the church, they're obliged to lie. It's it's literally a it's a document. It, yeah, it's a code. Yeah. So so why should we ever believe them? You know, I mean that. Now the last pope who the. You, who basically, you know, I mean, he was at the choke point for all that stuff, and then what do you know? He gets elected pope. Yeah. But then I don't know. I don't know why. I guess he was too poop to pope. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if he has the pope mobile anymore. I think he can only travel now via extradition. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah. So I grew up with that stuff. I was kind of serious about it. I mean, I felt a responsibility to be a good altar boy and whatever. And then I just, like, three straight years of just getting battered by that guy every morning, and it was like, see you later. And, uh, you know, I've never looked back, and I have absolutely... And the, the one thing they hang over you is that they're going to doom you and will excommunicate you and you're the gates of hell. And, I mean, this this child rapist was saying it to me on an altar every morning, that same threat. So, you know, bring, bring your best on, Catholic Church. But if someone's out there who can excommunicate me, please excommunicate me because I don't want to be associated with the likes of you. So did, did he live long enough to be imprisoned? No, he died. Uh, he died. Uh, but the church, yeah, I mean, the church paid off some stuff. He, I mean, he, 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 there had to be dozens and dozens of So he of was victims. one of the real monsters. He was a real monster. Oh, Him and was, that guy, Shanley. Yeah, like Shanley. And, yeah, Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, this guy was, I mean, there, I mean, he was just flat out evil. He was evil. And uh, I have a, I, so anyway, I formed a little organization with people who had to deal with him. Because I was emotionally abused by him, you know. So yeah. I'm in the club. Right. And, uh so I call it the Hell Alumni Association. And uh, I always say to my friend Charlie Bailey, who wrote the book about him, uh, In the Shadow of the Cross, I always say to Charlie, whenever I hear Neri's name, I think of two words, extra crispy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll believe in their hell for a minute just for that one. So you, you, you turn your back on religion. How old are you? Oh, I mean, you know, now I'm mid-teens and whatever. And You go to college in Florida. Why there? Uh... Well, it seemed far away, and they're get prob- away from the folks. Get out probably, of it. Yeah, and it seemed like it might have been a pretty good party. The sure, was Miami. it? It was not bad. I helped. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Sure. How long were, did you go through the whole thing? No, no, I went one year because I mean, because I got down there, and there's no seasons and whatever. It drove me crazy. I'm, and you crapped out on college after a year? No, no, I went. I, I studied geography literally by. Let's not even go into it, but I. <laughs> I was I got around. I went to a bunch of places, but I was a bunch of here's the thing. I mean, I mean, I guess we have to go back even further, you know, because it's the, it's just disclosure to make sense of it. I mean, I I had you know PTSD because when I was very young, the babysitter's father was coming over and raping me for a few months, and it took me until I was about thirty eight to really deal with that and face it and whatever. So like the guy you met, the people, whatever you think. 
you know, whoever was that Barry guy was. Yeah, yeah, that guy was. I was just like, I was in a, you know, shock. Aggravated, hostile shock. Yeah, to some, well, but to some extent, yeah, yeah. For your whole life. To protect myself. Right, no, I get it. And yeah. also, if people got too close to me, I would give them anything. That's the other thing, you know. Well, when did you, like, I, I remember vaguely hearing about this, and it was never clear to me. I remember you had sort of a breakdown a few years ago about it, right? Well, I mean, I would, yeah. When did you I, I know, know that it I, happened? I would like to say breakthrough. Okay, Well, yeah, I, I always knew but I never knew exactly. And then a sister came forward, and then there was another person who, who knew about it. So it's corroborated. We knew who the guy was. He died in a New York State prison not far from for, here. Why was he there? For, for raping little boys. Oh, really? That's what he did. And he did it? Uh, Serving his third or fourth term, and he died. You know, he, but, he, but he was he, gone. But his, his, his game was he'd go to where his daughter was babysitting well, yeah, and it might have been stepdaughter. I haven't yeah. been able to figure that part out. But, you know, like if, I, I, let me just tell the women out there in the audience, if you're looking in the, in the, in the you know, Lonely Hearts ads and the guy says loves children, you know, they may actually mean that, you know. So uh, be careful of those guys, you know. I mean, I like kids, that's fine. But, you know, when they put it in the ad yeah that's what they're looking for right sometimes so so you had this this uh so my parents would go out you know i mean they're they've been through the depression and world war ii they go out on a friday night right. you know like you know we beat you know we we beat the nazis let's right. go sure so and this guy would come over and you know and it was re- i mean it was really i mean i was like five years old and it was Ugh. it was life-threatening you know i mean because i would it's getting asphyxiated because i was getting my face shoved in a pillow so that was what i had to get back to figure out and recent and it's funny how this stuff sticks with you because i mean I, you know i mean i really the main thing i do is is try to help people you know i helping others it's promoted my healing more than anything i like like you know aa whatever yeah. you know so uh you know and you think you're fine for years well a couple like a month and a half ago there was a story in the paper about a little girl and India, who was about three years old, who died from being raped. And then the, I, I was just sitting, you know, in my living room by myself, and I just thought, that poor kid, like, imagine, raped to death. And then the light came on, like, holy shit, I almost got raped to death a bunch of times. And, you know, you got a couple choppy weeks after that. And that isn't being some wimp and this, and people, you know. PTSD's real. Yeah, yeah, this stuff is serious. And you gotta and you know, you gotta wrestle every wolf man that knocks at the door and get through it. You you can't go around things. You have to go through them. But that doesn't mean it's my whole identity or whatever. I'm like a million other things. Well, how do you go through that kind of uh how do you grieve and re- resolve that type of anger as a grown man? Well, you know, I mean, it's weird. What do you think was taken away from you? Well, my childhood. Yeah. I was in shock from my childhood. <sighs> You know, I mean, I was just sort of not present, yeah. you know, and there's so many kids that are like that. There's sweethearts, this, there's sweethearts sitting somewhere where this podcast is being listened to that are already in that shape. And that isn't fomenting some sort of huge panic or anything. You know, there's there's bad cases where peep cops want to railroad people about child abuse and it's nonsense. But for every one of those cases that you read a huge story about, you could you could match it with like little one inch stories of kids that are, you know, yeah. so hurt. And, you know, I mean, I think that if children can if if you the politically why it's such an important issue to me is 
that I think people go along with a lot of stuff because they're, they grow up not trusting their hearts because nobody else has taken the rap for how they feel. No one else has taken any responsibility. So eventually kids figure, well, it's got to be me. Right. You know, that's me. That's right. the problem. It's my fault. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you begin to behave in a fashion that corroborates your self-loathing, and then you go off, and however long that takes, and then maybe if you get lucky, you sort it all out. Like, I was lucky that I didn't have, like, a natural tendency to chemical dependency. I was at every party. You know, I was, uh, you know, I drank plenty. I smoked dope. I did yeah. whatever. But I, you know... For whatever reasons, I you didn't have the yourself. I didn't have the chemical predisposition mm-hmm. to just go off that cliff. Sure. So I was once I figured out what the deal was and what I had to work out. Then it's like now I'm in you know in the Mark Twain Club. When the others drink, I like to help. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but what? But at what age were you when you feel like you did have a, a handle on? on the feelings of, uh, from the PTSD. I mean, it was fairly recently. Like, no, right? well, I mean, yeah, yeah, when I was about thirty-eight. So the last 20, 20, 20 or so years. Actively, you know, yeah, and seeking the first, help. And, 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 and the first, yeah. And, but it's funny. When I first was dealing with it, and you're talking to a friend about it, and they go, are you talking to anybody about it? Yeah, I thought I was fucking talking to you. Oh, I, <laughs> you know, Apparently, I got to go pay some asshole a whole bunch of money, and he's going to try to put me on pharmaceutical dry ice, which I avoided. Because and it's but, so. But, but, but let's not completely poo-poo uh, therapists. I mean, there. No, 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 no. No, I, no I'm not. I'm right. not. There's great therapists. Sure. But what I'm saying is, I was doing that too. But right. you know, uh, I was breaking silence with people who should trust me, and, and you know, who knew me well enough to know that I was being serious. Yeah, and and, and, and and you know that I wanted people to understand it. Well, that's a weird thing what you say there because there is a vulnerability towards you know there are certain. I believe in, 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 in even having a conversation with you about yeah. this and in talking yeah. to people on the podcast that you know, human beings are, are built to, to, to handle and, and carry each other yeah. and process. Yeah. But, but you, you know, when people have you know, deep issues, even if yeah. they want to talk to them, yeah. you know, people who you talk to are like, ah, it's a little out of my wheelhouse. You yeah, know, right, like, right. I'm not asking you to do anything but listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, and, right. and open your heart. Right. And, and people are like, I can't, you know, I got a thing. And, but yeah, but, and they don't even... And with me, they didn't even, even, I mean, it wasn't even that literal, but you just, sure. that was, there was just this, are you, you talking? You wanted to be open But it just, it's, yeah, and, and, and it just struck me as humorous, are you talking? And whenever anybody I asked me if I was talking to anybody, I was talking to somebody. <laughs> talking <laughs> like, to I was you. talking to you, shit. But what do you think, you know, in, in looking back on it as, as an intellectual person, do you think that your compassion for the underdog and the victims of the world uh, in any way were influenced by your heart being broken and, and, and being destroyed absolutely i'm i'm an empath Mm -hmm. i'm a tuning fork for agony and i would rather have i would rather risk the disdain of everybody than 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 risk my own self-loathing for not saying what i think i need to say and you know that isn't as much fun on a Saturday night as some people are looking for. But no, I, I'm in the same yeah, club. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you know, I, I, there's a, there's that weird wavering between you know uh, you know the guy who wants to you know drag everyone down with the sadness, right, and or the guy that's too angry to hang out with, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> How do you exist between those, those yeah. two wonderful poles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm you know I'm pretty good now. I mean, no, you, you seem know, good. I am yeah, pretty good now, and and. There was just a few years where, you know, some of the shows I did were like, you know, I mean, it would be great. I would be stuff that I used to 
used to stop an audience in its tracks and they wouldn't laugh at like death squad material. Yeah. They would laugh at it like it was the beginning of truth or consequences. If I, if I was just getting away from the child abuse stuff, you know, they were rolling. Oh, a good death squad joke. Were you able, so were you able to, did, did, did that material uh, ultimately serve a personal purpose and you were able to, uh, to help uh, move through it by doing the material and now it's refined and you have yeah, some oh, distance uh, around yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. I was in, I was accustomed to talking about on stage wherever I was at. You weren't afraid to lose an audience. Oh, no. Wait, so, so that yeah. gave you a freedom that a lot of comics yeah. you know, don't, don't have the courage to deal with. So you already knew what it was like to, to piss off an audience. Oh, I mean, I, you know, I won't be happy till I gut this room was a common quote. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, that, that, but that's the thing. I mean, that's such a fun dance to do where you really test it and test it. But then, you know, you, you know you're going to ad lib something really funny that right. just sets it about and it's everything's yeah. fine and yeah. then they still heard it right you know but i mean i, I think i'm uh i'm going to defy you people to like me right now yeah 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 um but not because i'm a prick but because i'm sticking up for somebody you know i'm not assigning blame downwards you but know you're, but what's interesting is that even before you were conscious yeah. Of, of all this stuff, right? You were, you know, you were sticking up for yourself, yeah. And that, you know, what the comedy stage afforded you was to enact your fundamental distrust of all those fuckers, yeah, 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 and have your own voice. Yeah. I mean, because that's what you know. When people talk to me about why I do comedy, it's like because, and I think you're the same way. And I'm just realizing it now. Is that like I didn't get in this to be an entertainer, right? I get into this so I could speak for myself, right? So you know, when you, when you come from a place where you came from, whether you know it or not, psychologically, it's like. I'm not here to be a song and dance right. man. I'm here because I've chosen this medium so right. I can have a point of view and a place to talk. Right, absolutely. And, and be seen. Because one thing that a, a being raped as a child does is it erases yourself. Yeah, well, it, it sure can. So, it's, you know, so the, fight, to... so, so the fight of your life is to really have a, a, a sense of self. Yes, and to survive. Now, and, and to get to the point where, I mean, the day I found out who the rapist was, mm -hmm. a, a, a social worker where the piece was rerun in Syracuse, the piece mm -hmm. I wrote for the Boston Phoenix about it was rerun in Syracuse. I get a call from a social worker. She knows the guy. He was around the corner at yeah. the time. She says the name. Oh, my God. That's who, you know. And, and uh, she told me, well, I said, well, where is he? She said, well, he died in prison. I was involved in that case. He died in prison last year. And the first thing I felt was pity for the guy. And that makes people really, some people get really mad at me about it. But I just thought, like, what a complete waste of a life. And thank God. And I wanted to go. I, I tried to find out from New York State where he was buried so I could go put flowers on his grave to say, I didn't become you. You know, I didn't become one I resisted. As opposed to go I became, pee on it. Yeah, right. Well, that's what everybody <laughs> wants you to do. You know, right, but, right. I, you know, I became a human rights activist. Yeah. And not a and not you know someone that offends human yeah. rights. So, uh, you know, and I wrote a screenplay about it. Goldthwait wanted me to write it, but it's kind of gotten mi and mired down. But I called it "Call Me Lucky" because, you know, what if I was raped one more time? Maybe then I do become a rape. You know, you know, what if you know what if I did did end up becoming a heroin addict and dying. What, you know, I'm like, oh, like just so many things. You know, I mean, I was just lucky. Yeah, I was just, I was lucky that I had the wherewithal, like, you know, I don't know what, I'm like a lapsed agnostic, but, you know, if, 
if there's if somebody was going to be raped, maybe it was supposed to be me because I know how to. I spent years telling people shit they didn't want to hear. Huh. So this is the thing people really don't want to hear, and a lot of the reason they don't want to hear it are two two not terrible things. And well, one is one is just sort of typical cowardice. It's real scary to think in those terms to like graphically get it. But but then the other thing is kindness. People don't want to live in a world where people do this shit to children that really gets done to children every day and they can't you know and and they have defenses against that and i you know you and, and be, yeah and i can't be mad at them about that you know i mean i i can't be i can't you know i can't you know and i also learned relatively early on thanks to a good friend of mine from this town who said something to me he's been a well, he's one of the comics that started with gold and kenny and me and uh, Do I know him? His name's Wendell Wilde. A lot of guys know him. But he, he became, a, in this town, a in Buffalo, he became a social worker in the school system. He saved so many kids over the years. It's great. But, you know, he, he, he made it clear. You know, I mean, just because of a talk with him I had one day, I drew the conclusion myself. But it was, you know, I'm set, you're setting yourself up. For, like, people... People who have been abused and been through terrible stuff, they know how to they know how to lose. It's a comfort zone. You know? Getting up and doing something, like getting out of that pit, you know, your own shit. Well, you like the temperature of it, you're kinda yeah. used to the smell. Yeah. And if they stand up and hose you off, it's kinda shocking. But a half hour later when you've gone in and taken a real shower and put on clean clothes, oh my God, do I feel better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh but but a lot of people set up a lot of the sort of approach to child abuse survivors is that, that they were sort of like expecting the whole world to come up and apologize to us. Well, the whole world is going through its own shit, and it's not going to happen. If you set up that impossible thing, then you're just going to always lose, but you're comfortable there, and I'm, you know, and here I have some more pills. Yeah. Sit there, and that's that. Well, so... You know, fortunately, I, I got up, I got rinsed off, I got a shower, I got the clean clothes on. And I, I mean, it, and it, I had a lot to process. But, you know, as I, I mentioned it before, but I, that's my little metaphors. I wrestled every wolf man that knocked at the door for a couple of years, and then they, they stopped coming after a while. Then they show up once in a while, and you do what you have to do with it. But, I mean, I've been 15 years until I had a couple bad weeks lately. So, you know, and yeah. I'm fine. And I processed that and figured out what I, oh, I needed to know. Oh, that was the asphyxiation thing, you know. But you could, a, like, you get physical reaction. Yeah, yeah, a little right. bit, yeah, yeah. Right, you like tightness in the chest. Yeah, or you, yeah. Oh, my well, God. Breathing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, couldn't breathe. Yeah. That's frightening, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing feat you accomplished to not only have the, uh, the sort of uh, self-awareness and then to actually process the feelings, uh, you know, head on. Like you said, and I think comedy must have must have fucking helped. Oh well, it sure did, and it really helped when I kind of got through it and got back to it, and went out there. And now I don't have that self-loathing that you have before you work your shit out. So I mean, I get out there and go, you know, I'm pretty good at this. Well, how long, so that's a re- relatively new feeling for you. Relatively, I mean, I mean, I knew I was good. I knew how to do it or whatever. But I mean. I, what, but, I mean, the degree of difficulty of what I was doing was always so hard. Just, you know, like my whole work is putting the segues together. You reveal the wrong piece of information here. You can lose 15 minutes later on because, you know, it's all about surprise and when you reveal things right. and whatever. So for me, I mean, I could spend five or six hours putting together an hour set for one night. 
You know, I mean, that, uh, pretty much every show I ever did was like that. I worked that hard on it just to have the segues right so it would flow and seem conversational. And also because that you're because you're doing directly, like you know, I've gotten away from talking about almost anything but myself. Yeah, <laughs> because because well, I don't want to be tethered to the news cycle. Right, right. Well, but but when you you know when you're doing politics, yeah, you have to be tethered to the momentum and the the ebb and flow of. of and I got and that's the thing. And the thing was that I got away from in that sense was I know what I'm talking about. You know, I mean, I used to keep, you know, newspapers for 20. I can prove it to you here. Like, you know, <laughs> you I, mean, guy, I mean, let's I was, go out to the garage. Yeah. But well, except I mean, I was it wasn't like yeah. I was it didn't look like I was a hoarder, <laughs> but it was all there and you could never find it anyway, you know. And I knew this stuff. Now you got the internet, it's there. Yeah. So let's talk about the evolution then of 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 being a comedian and being a you know a political you know activist is that because I mean I assume you end up in Boston you mentioned yeah. the Ding Ho and the Ding Ho is a Chinese restaurant in Cambridge and uh, you know it was a it was a fairly famous place it's been yeah. mentioned on my show before you got that whole Boston contingent that started right. there Stephen Wright, Wright the the, the, the Clarks the you know Jimmy Tingle was a bartender there right. you got uh, you got Kenny and Lenny and Don and everybody right, else right, right, right. who was the crew at that time that you were close to if you can remember well I was you come down from upstate well well what happened was my father was in a VA hospital in Martinsburg. West Virginia yeah. and real sick and they thought he was going to die and then he didn't and so and you know I'm a young comic I'm you like broke. the guy what my Your own father? man yeah sure yeah, yeah. and I, my mother too my mother's visiting now she's 89 years oh, old oh well good uh, she's great but um how did they respond to this revelation well my father was old and quite sick but I mean he was quite sick uh, so he didn't deal with it my mother just said whatever I can do to help let yeah. me know she yeah. was the greatest so um uh, anyway, I'm in Martinsburg, yeah. West Virginia. Yeah. I'm in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and I, my old man's going to make it now. Yeah. So I figure I'll hitchhike up to New York and see if I can do some sets. Yeah. Well, I'm hitchhiking, and it's raining like hell. I mean, it's you know pitchforks and hammer handles. Yeah. And so uh, this guy picks me up, and he says, well, I'm not going to New York, and I'm kind of cutting around New York because I'm going to Boston. And I say to myself... Boston's in the American League, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'll go to Boston, Boston's huge to me, you know, so I go to Boston, and it's Memorial Day weekend, and I go over and I do a set, the Connection has a show at the Springfield Street Saloon, which was what became the Ding Ho, and so I did a set, I did a set, and it went great, and then the guys pay me like eight dollars and say, don't tell the other guys we gave you this much money, and I went, man, and then they said to me, you know, Boston will never be a weekend comedy town. Well, this was a Sunday night on a three-day weekend, and we're, it's completely sold out. It was a weekend night. What are you talking about? No, we only do Tuesdays and Thursdays. So what so, is this, 77, so 78? That was 79. So, and, so that's when I... Uh, so I went back to the Ding Ho just to see what was going on, and I ended up becoming the bouncer and booking the bands because they still had bands and stuff. And this I is when I was at the Chinese restaurant? Yeah, yeah. And I became friends with Shun Li. And and I said we should do more comedy. Comedy's coming on, you know. Look at so you were actually the guy that started this shit. Well, at the at the thing, yeah, 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 yeah. At the thing. Well, I mean, other people did use the room, but I I was the you know the thing was the what the thing was first was the first full time comedy club. We did weekends and whatever in Boston. Yeah, and I and I knew that in those days you had to wait around like you were in the National Guard, and if they might call you on the day of the show to tell you to come do it. I booked everybody a month in advance. 
I upped the pay to like you get 15, 20 bucks a set or whatever. And if you hosted, you made 35 or 50. And then on the weekends, and it escalated. Who were you booking? <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, at the beginning, it was uh, Chance, of course. It Chance was Langton. Lenny, the great Chance Langton, Lenny Clark, uh, uh, Sweeney, Mike Donovan, uh, Paula Poundstone. Uh, Jack Gallagher. Great. Stephen came along in about six months. Then Stephen Steve and I became Steven really Wright. good friends. So and many I, of these people have done my show. Yeah. Paula has. Uh, Mike Donovan was on the live one. Uh, Stephen Wright's done my show. Uh-huh. Uh, Gavin has not. Lenny has uh-huh. not. Mike Mike McDonald has was not. Uh, Mike McDonald uh, was one of the first uh, you know guys who would headline a show there. But. Uh, a lot of people, you know, I know Bob and Ron, Ron Bob Lynch, and Ron, yeah, Ron they Lynch, were yeah. tremendous. Uh, That's where I first saw him. I went to the Ding Ho when I was in uh, when I started doing open mics in nineteen eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's yeah. about when I first saw you. Right, too. right. Yeah. So that so you were booking it. You were. Doing I, I booked it. I booked everybody, but because well, I had been a comic, too? I had been around the country. Yeah, of course, I'd been around the country, and I saw how shitty comics were treated. And I just had the idea that it... You were doing sets all around the country at that I, point? I, I, you know, I'd been to the Holy City Zoo, and I tried to get out in L.A. and couldn't, and then did some... Oh, so you made the rounds, yeah. and by the time you came back when your dad was in the hospital, yeah. you had tried to get in other cities. Yeah, and, and I saw everybody... What happened in San Francisco? Well, the zoo was about the best I did. I got on sometimes there, and I met some guys. And, you know, I mean, I mean that's when I met A. Whitney Brown, and we remained dear friends Is he to all right? this day. He's great. So, anyway... I put it together, and it immediately takes off because, you know, no one's done it. And, 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 I mean, there's such great talent there. You know, Gallagher, Lenny, right, you know, yeah. Sweeney, bang, 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 bang. And, uh, and it just took off, and the room was really good physically for comedy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, those are the days. I get, I, I'm happy to talk about it here. A lot of times it's just like, you know your four millionth little league reunion. You know, like I don't sure. care anymore. But, but I mean, it was just great, and then it just built to the point where Stephen got the Tonight Show, and 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 uh, then it sort of then it became more real after that. But it was a really good training ground, and I mean, I just did stuff like if people's families came in, we fed them for free drinks on the house or whatever so that the parents didn't think it was so weird suddenly it's kind of cool your kids in show business rather than a, a two a, drink minimum and blah blah and the community know. yeah yeah right and and it were and i mean treating people well works giving people a chance you know and it's self-esteem you feel like somebody you treat them like someone they walk out on the stage they act like well this someone. is interesting because it's uh you know it's not show business what it is is like you know the the Boston scene, which you know from what you're telling me, yeah. you know, was sort of on your shoulders a bit because I'm sure there were gigs around. There was other, obviously yeah. there were yeah. comics developing yeah. there, yeah. and they had places to perform. I don't know mm-hmm. if Nick's was there yet or Nick's what was, came along later, right? Mm-hmm. So like this is an organic. This is really the heart of you know what what became the Boston scene and what remained. Yeah, I mean, the connection deserves a lot of credit for yeah. sort of like getting the original talent together, right? And, and then I, I sort of. But it was like yeah, the other I, outlet. I, I, I was like the team, you know, the player psychiatrist, you know. Yeah, they were sending people out, you know, yeah. you know, like yeah, here's your directions, right, right, and and you were like, yeah, we well, you can hang out here, just be yeah, and be original, mm-hmm. 
you know and i mean i never use that trite thing you can either you have a chance to suck here i didn't want you to suck but you know they you know they usually didn't but, but, but you the, could try shit yeah but by the time i got there it was interesting because i never quite understood you know how you were ingrained in all that because you know by and large you know well the, i was bitter because of the cocaine you know cocaine really did a lot of damage to the boston comedy scene and but not to you no, I mean, well, except it damaged this thing that was very dear to me. And, I mean, it got to the point where, because I didn't do coke, at one point, a rumor got back to me that I was a narc, which is, you know... Ridiculous. Fucking hilarious. But I just, like, from my point of view, coming in as a young comic, I was like, this guy is doing a type of comedy that, you know, these other guys really stay away from. Yeah. I mean, because by the time I first saw you, sure. you were aggressively political. There was yeah. not... You know, you had your jokes that people could understand, like right. you said. Right. You know, like the... I remember the true cigarettes, you know, the, the, the illustration. Well, I smoke true cigarettes. They, get, they are truthful because on the front of each and every pack, they have a cross-section of the valve that will have to be placed in your heart right, right, if yeah. you smoke these babies yeah. for a while. I, could write, I mean, I can write those kind of yeah. jokes. I could be one of those comics, but... Right. It wasn't enough for you. Nah, I had to you, you had a higher else. purpose. I, I, and I remember, I, you know, let's, I, I'm, you know, I'm, or I was an idiot. Well, that's fine. Yeah, 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 I know. We can be humble, but I just remember sitting there in a in the dressing room at Stitches with you, and you you kind of held court. You know, it was your night. Yeah. And there, you know, and people would hang around, and somehow or another, I was drunk, and you were railing about racism, and I don't even remember, you know, what the hell the conversation was, but I somehow brought it around to Danny DeVito, and I don't even know what it was. I know. No, but I just remember, I had this weird memory. It's like, yeah. I don't understand what you're saying. You're, you're saying Danny DeVito is racism? Because <laughs> I, I, in my mind, I'd put something together about the way he is yeah. short. and the, yeah. Yeah, Who the fuck knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do remember you were sort of holding court, and I, and I still couldn't understand because, you know, there was this whole community of people, yeah. but it, it felt like you were different and that you were looked at differently. You know, maybe, uh, not negatively, but you no. stood alone. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you have to. But, it, I mean, it was a, it was fine. I, but they all must have respected I mean, I, you, you know, for giving I, but, them but, I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people over the years have sort of apologized to me because they don't do what I do, you know. And, I, and I've always said, no, I, see, I'm supposed to, I'm the guy that's supposed to be doing what I do. You figure out what you're supposed to do. Do it the best you can. And, you know, that's only going to make things better for me. And hopefully if I'm doing it right, I'm only going to make things better for you. Now I really like, now we get to the next part of my career when I start touring with these musicians and they really dig what I do. And these are the, these people were my heroes, you know, Jackson Brown. I mean, I'm listening to Lives in the Balance after eating it on stage, talking about Death Squad somewhere in New Hampshire, yeah. and listening to Lives in the Balance. And two months later, I'm on tour with Jackson Brown. And then Billy Bragg and Dar Williams and 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 who really saved me and who really subsidized me as a comic was Stephen because he took me out to open for him forever and he and I would ride around the country on the bus with the you know Tim Sarkis his manager or and then a variety of uh, tour managers afterwards and we you know we're riding around on the bus and then I'd get off and walk out talk to Stephen's three thousand people about the environment yeah <laughs> as three guys are traveling the country on a do? bus oh great because his crowd was smart we call it the both sides of the brain tour because i'm kind of literal and yeah but steven and i have very similar senses of humor and we really enjoy and there's a subtlety there's a there's a, a sort of engagement with the uh the the i don't know what you would call it you know it's you've got to use your brain yeah you know it's not look shiny 
Yeah, it's, yeah, 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 the, yeah. You know, yeah, that there's yeah. a depth that has, they have to do the math themselves. Yeah, there's a slyness. Yeah, yeah, but there's literally problem solving to yeah, get the right, job. right, 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 right. And, right. and, you know, and that's a, that's a very different thing. So you're, so, you know, basically, you know. At so, that, I mean, I mean, imagine right around the country with him when, I mean, you know. At the top of his game. And, you know, I, He's I think he remains it. I mean, what a great thing. I mean, that's why, I mean, I look at these things, you know, yeah, like we told the earlier part of my story, but, you know, I get Howard Zinn as a, as well, a mentor. Let's talk about that. Let's, I get Steve, right around with Steven. Well, well you know. this is interesting because, like, you know, you know, because, like, I've told people about, you know, I, I did my own time, you know, trying to do politics, and I was right. a reactionary thinker, and, and I think I was, you know, heavily influenced by, you know, Bill Hicks, and also, you know, I, I found that what you were doing was, was exciting, and, you know, and I, I wanted to do that, and I tried to do that, but I didn't think, it, you know, as, you know, recent, relatively recently, once the anger started to dissipate, and once I spent yeah. two years doing lefty talk radio, yeah. and realizing it's very hard to, to, to find your actual own voice right. in the midst of, of talking points and platforms, right. whether they're far left, middle, whatever it is, is, and there's not much far left that you can find around here. You know? No, but, yeah. he, but but you know, far left on, on some level, it, it's not that it's esoteric. You know, there are, there are comics that do it. Yeah. But you you know, for some reason, it, it it's a, it's a it's a, a kind of a boutique racket in the right, sense yeah. that it's a niche market. Right. That you know that ultimately what you want to do is is change the minds of people that don't think like that. Well, exactly, and that's why we should have been out in America with that station that called itself America. Instead, we're on Park Avenue telling everybody what to well, do. There's a lot of problems. I can't even I mean, begin yeah, to yeah, fucking yeah, well, I deal mean, with I, I just, I just wish that we went. You know, there's a steel strike. They're ruining these people in, you know, London, Ohio, or whatever. Let's and covered go. it. Yeah, yeah. And and put their voices on the air. That's what we did at Camp Casey, and that was a great moment for that that network because we really helped build up the crowd from right. down there. So, so what what I say is that you know there's only a few guys that do this stuff well. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 do it well. You're one of them, and there's a few others. Yeah. You, 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 who at any given time, right? You know, political comedy is is you know some people you know dismiss it because it just doesn't exist in its pure form as it should. Uh, and there's only a few people that can do and it. And it's hard to develop an audience. It's hard we end to, up preaching to the choir. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, well, yeah. but but it's, well, you know what? You know what? I've got an answer to that one though. The choir are the greatest people in the world, absolutely. and they're out there getting the shit kicked out of them a lot of times. So if they come in and get a shot in the arm from me and some answers, you know, like like you can turn around if you don't love this country, why don't you get out of it? Because I don't I don't want to be victimized by its foreign policy. Yay! They got something. Here you no, go. No, yeah, it's great. You're, they deserve you know, the relief yeah. and they deserve the support, and, and but, it's good to but, rally. Uh, but I'm happy. But I mean, like I say, I could play to Stevens crowd, and that's not you know, and they get it. You know, I mean, I, I, you have to know who you're playing to. But sometimes as a comic, you know, you, you, you connect in a way where you don't even <coughs> realize it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure this has happened to you. Yeah. You know, people come up to you and like, you know, I, you know, I don't know if you would ever remember this, but you were opening for Stephen Wright and yeah. know who you were and you changed the way I thought about yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like that one joke changed yeah. the way I thought about everything. I, the, I have a great story about that. I'm arrested at Seabrook. Seabrook. I'm handcuffed to a kid. <laughs> The kid says to me, my friend started bringing me to your show at Stitches two years ago. I was in the Young Americans for Freedom. Now I'm fucking handcuffed to you in a nuclear... (laughs) 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 Ah, good day for a subversive. Well, yeah, yeah, right. It's like, like, welcome, welcome. But so what, 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 where was the moment where, you know, obviously getting, you know, knowing what you're doing and, and, and standing for what you stood for, you know, how did the alignment... 
That's a bad word. How did the relationship alignment would be the uh, the other side's word? Well, he was aligned with Zinn. Yeah, right. How did the uh, the the relationship with Howard Zinn begin? Because I know he taught at my college, and I right. I was not politically activated, and I missed out on his lectures uh-huh. and his class. Uh-huh. But you know, he was uh, you know the foremost sort of uh, humanitarian historian right. of, of right. what really happened uh, right. in the world and in bottom America. Bottom-up history. Yeah, bottom-up history. Yeah. So how did you seek him out, or how did he find you? Well, we ended up speaking at a lot of the same rallies. Uh-huh. And, and then Howard came to me, I mean, and said, Barry, what you do is very important. Yeah. And, and, I mean, Howard has said such lovely things. I mean, he introduced me on that. I did an album called Kill the Messenger in 91, uh-huh. and... And I just listened to it again recently, and I'm, I'm really proud of it now. At the time, I heard everything that was wrong with it. Now it's like it's strong. Howard intros me and compares me to Twain, Dick Gregory, uh, uh, Finley, Peter Dunn, and, I can't, and Lenny Bruce. Yeah. You know, Howard Zinn did that. I mean, like, call me lucky. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, pretty good. Like, he's... His word stands for a little something. I got to do a show with Kurt Vonnegut once. I got to do, I mean, this, you know, this stuff, like, I haven't gotten some of the payoffs that you get as a commercially successful comic. But on the other hand, I've had this rich life of these wonderful friends. You know, I had, I wrote for the Boston Phoenix for, you know, as a, whenever I wanted to for 20 years. And I had this great editor, Cliff Garboden, who basically taught me to write by editing me. Uh, I mean, I've had all these incredibly good turns happen to me, and I'm thankful and fortunate, you know. And and now, uh, you know, I'm I'm ready. I'm turning sixty, and, and I, I'm ready to take. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not really a victory lap, but I might be able to play the thing to a tie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you know, and and uh, I want to go out. Find some audiences, you know, to, and, and convey some stuff. And I and I and like I say, we might be at one of those moments of Zen optimism, where people catch on that these people that we argue with each other about all the time don't give a shit about any of us, you know. So we have to care about ourselves and pull together and have the courage to be part of a collective. We get so rugged individualism. Well, it takes guts to say, you know, I need to be in a group. I need to be with more people. I need the help of others. Yeah, well, because we we live in a culture that you know is being presented <clears throat> to us as you know it, it interconnected like it's never been before, but it's never been more isolating. That's right. That's right. And uh, and I think that's a good place to end, but I don't want to because I, I want to talk about when 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 comedy you know crosses over when you talk about you know guys like Randy Credico and you talk about you know what you guys did in Nicaragua, which I don't even know. You know, that because, you, you know, and I pay lip service to myself in the sense that, like, well, if you can't remain objective, yeah. then how are you, you know, being an effective uh, satirist? Well, there's phony objectivity, you know. I mean, you got a point of view. If you pretend like you don't have a point of view, you're a liar. You know, I mean, I mean, every day, you know, but some people say child abuse can be good for the kid. You know, I mean, you know, like that phony balance. I just want to be on the level. And you can be on the level and have your point of view. Okay. You see? So I just try to be on the level and people know where I'm where I'm coming from. But what happened with the with the uh, with the with the Contras? Well, we went down there and, you know, I mean, you and Credico? Tingle was there, and uh, there were several people. And Ortega asked you to come? 
Well, we were friendly with the, the Sandinistas. People asked me if I met with the opposition. I said, yeah, I had two layovers in Miami. But uh, <laughs> uh, what we did was shows mostly for the international brigades that were there building power. I mean, they'd been through earthquake and war and suffering from the worst dictator in the history of the Western Hemisphere until that point anyway. And, and, and they, that country was just so ravaged, but the people were beautiful, and they could separate us from our country's policy. And so we went around and did these shows. I called it, and it wasn't a USO's tour, it was a USOUT tour. And, and we got taken at one point, and you know, they all love Credico because he'd been down there a lot, and they brought us up to this field hospital. They never brought foreigners to this place. And there was a field hospital, and it was full of, full of kids. I mean, if any of them were 16 years old, they would be the real senior members. And yeah. every kid, there had to be 90 beds in this tent. It was hot, out in the jungle, and every kid had lost at least one limb. Oh. And somehow it fell upon me to give, to make the remarks yeah. for the delegation. And I don't remember what I said, but I remember what happened. When I finished, I mean, people, are, tears are coming. I just, I just told them, you know, they, they weren't my enemy. Ronald Reagan was. I, I, you know, everyone in my country doesn't look at kids like you and think that you need to be harmed and you need to live in war and you need to, you know, uh, because you because you just want a fair shake, you know. So um, uh, anyway, I finished. There's a lot of tears, and then they start to applaud, hitting. A hand heart. on the chest because yeah. they don't have two hands oh, a lot yeah, of them. Oh my God. So I know the sound of one hand clapping, and it's my conscience. So when I continue to, I mean that 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 has stayed with me my my ever since then, and it's kept me as as honest as you can keep somebody like me. Well, that's a uh, that's that's this is a a uh, certainly a unique comedy tale, <laughs> and I and I appreciate you talking to me, Barry. Thank you very much, Mark. I we appreciate good? it. Yeah, you bet. And thanks so much for having me. What a, what an honor it is to oh, be it's on the show. Great to see you doing so well. Yeah, and we'll go do some you. comedy later. Yeah, let's have fun. That's it. That's our show. Thank you, Barry. Uh, respect, my friend, and uh, and uh, I hope you're doing well. I know you're listening. I appreciate your time. Uh, if you want anything WTF Pod related, go to wtfpod.com. Uh, kick in a few shekels. Get that app. Upgrade that bitch. You know what I'm saying? That's not a sexist thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feminizing an app, and it's my app, so I think I get a... Do I get a pass? Yeah, if you get the free app, you can upgrade and get all the episodes. You can leave some comments. You can buy some merch. We're restocking for Christmas. Ceramic mugs soon. WTFpod.com. JustCoffee.coop available there. I gotta get off the fucking nicotine. I gotta do something. I've got fucking pain in my arm. I'm getting achy. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>